turn our Bibles tonight to the book of Judges, chapter number 1. Judges, chapter number 1. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of God. God's been so good to me today. If, uh, if I didn't know Him better, uh, then, then how do I say that right? If I didn't know Him, I'd wonder why He'd been so good to me. I'd think something was wrong. That's how good He's been to me today. Amen. And uh, I don't worry about that because I know Him, and I know He's just that good. <laughs> Amen. But I tell you, praise His holy name. He's been such a, a good God. He is a good God. What could man ask for in God beyond what the God of the Bible and who the God of the Bible is? I mean, if if you sat down, if if as Paul describes it in the book of Acts, if art and man's device sought to define and, and, you know, describe the perfect God, it would pale in comparison to the God of the Bible. Say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, look at those uh, ancient pagan gods of Greece, of Rome, of Babylon, of Assyria. Every one of them bloodthirsty, brutal, vicious individuals, debased, deranged. And yet here we've got the true God of the Bible. How precious He is. How loving He is. How gentle He is. What a God we've got, man. I tell you, i got a lot of things to shout about. But if I didn't have nothing else, just who He is would be enough. You say, preacher, you mean that He saved you? No, I'm going to be honest with you. Even if He hadn't saved me, He still would deserve praise for who He is. Because He's a lot better than what man could have ever devised or come up with. He's a precious God. And then all this, as uh, Maze Jackson, you say all this in heaven too. Amen. What a blessing. Judges chapter number 1. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Judges chapter number 1. We'll begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know those names are being used to reflect and refer to the entire tribes. It's spoken of like a conversation in a figurative sense. But when it talks about Judah, it's talking about many uh, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of individuals. When it talks about Simeon, it's talking about likewise many tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of individuals. And who's going to go up first as they're conquering the land? The Bible says, verse 4, And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek ten thousand men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. And Lord, we know that uh, the devil has sought every opportunity to disrupt and derail and distract 
from this precious moment that we have right now. So help us now that we are here and we've gathered in this place and the Word of God will be preached. Help us to have our hearts submitted and in a right condition and on a right relationship to Your Word. Uh, Lord, this is Your Word and words. And help us tonight to approach it with a reverence, a humility, and obedience that can allow it to transform our lives. We'll be sure to thank You for what follows. Lord, thank You for being such a precious God. Thank You for being so good to me and to my family, to our church. Lord, thank You so much for all that You've done. May we praise Your name for how good You are. May we praise Your name for all that You've done. May we praise Your name for Your great mercy in withholding what could and should have been done, but by Your mercy You didn't. Lord, we're so thankful, and we just want to praise You for how good and gracious You are. Lord, we love You, and thank You for loving us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Judges marks a transition period for the nation of Israel. If you were to travel through their history, of course, they begin in the heart of God uh, and in the promise of God to a man by the name of Abraham. That God would, in Abraham and his wife Sarah's old age, would give them a child of promise and that from that child would grow a great nation. And so they uh, have Isaac, their son, and Isaac then would uh, go on to bear two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob would go on to bear 12 sons. These 12 sons uh, were sort of the uh, figurative federal heads of what would become the 12 uh, different tribes of the nation of Israel. One of those sons, of course, was Joseph, who was carried in bondage down to Egypt. There in Egypt, he went from the prison house to the palace. And he went from from chains to a throne. God exalted him and gave him a place of stature and status in the land of Egypt. And through that, delivered and saved the nation of Israel from the famine that was ravaging the world at that time. And so Joseph brings his whole family uh, down to Egypt to dwell with him. And he brings his brethren down to Egypt to dwell with him. They live down there. They stay down there. It doesn't take long and a pharaoh arises that doesn't know Joseph, doesn't have any regard for the people of God. And in a short period of time, they are in prison. They are enslaved, rather. And uh, for 450 years, they live as a slave people in the land of Egypt. But during that time of affliction, there was great multiplication. You know, that's often the way it is in our life. During times of great affliction, that's when God grows us. During that 450 years, they went from being merely a family to being an entire nation. Then, of course, comes in the Word of God the story of Moses, who uh, is tasked by God with leading the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. There's estimations, and that's all they are is estimations, but puts the number somewhere around 2 million souls that would have left Egypt whenever the Israelites were led out of the land of Egypt. They sojourned through the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, unwillingness uh, to trust the Lord. Can I tell you this? Hey, when I do things in my own strength, they're a lot harder than when I just follow the Lord. You know that journey... <laughs> that journey all from, from Egypt over to Kadesh Barnea and the entrance into the promised land was an 11-day journey. It's what the book of Deuteronomy says. It took them 40 years to go 11 days. That sounds like how life's going when I'm doing it in my own strength. 
Uh, hey, listen, a 40-day-long, 11-day trip is the way that things go. And uh, so upon the death of Moses, Joshua is raised up to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And he does indeed do that very thing. The book of Joshua marks a period of time in which the land is being sometimes actively and sometimes apathetically conquered. It has been apportioned to the various tribes, and they are to some degree seeking to conquer the land. But here in the opening phrases of the book of Judges, we learn that after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? There are two events that loom over this passage. But before we get to them, can I just remind you of sort of a principle of biblical study? One of the things that many people have gotten wrong, I think, to great dismay and to great uh, distraction and, and, and uh, you know, to, to great, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's derailed their perspective on this portion of the Word of God. You'll often hear in old gospel songs and things like that, you'll hear Canaan referenced as a picture of heaven. And uh, I don't have any problem with that as just as a principle, amen? Uh, I would say this, that I don't care what hymn book you're holding up, I can pick it apart, no matter what it is. Uh, I don't care what it is. I, uh, other than the book of Psalms, you hold a hymn book up and I can pick her apart. Uh, and, and I will tell you this, hey, listen, I will gladly sing that I'm on my way to Canaan land. That don't bother me one bit. But... The land of Canaan was not a picture of heaven. We know that because the land of Canaan, it had problems. It had giants. It had thorns and thistles and wild beasts and things that had to be conquered. Let me tell you, me and God are going to have a conversation if I walk into heaven and he says, all right, Toby, now whoop everybody here and it's yours. I'm going to be upset. (laughs) That ain't what the Bible describes heaven as. To me. And so Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Rather, Canaan is a picture of the victorious life that God desires and has provided for every one of His children. Canaan is the right place for the nation of Israel. And the victorious life, in other words, living not in consistent defeat and disobedience, but rather living a life, though not perfect, though with its share of giants and thorns and wild beasts, is nonetheless progressing forward in devotion and consecration to God. Hey, that's the right place for every Christian. That's where we ought to be. It's what we ought to be doing. And so their conquering the land is in many ways a picture of the believer appropriating all of the riches that we have provided in Christ Jesus and yielding their life to Him in such a way that brings glory unto Him. Now, with that in mind, when we approach this passage, there are two truths that loom large upon the page. The first is this, the departure of their leader. It's interesting, whenever you open the book of Joshua, you know what it says? It says, now Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. When you open the book of Judges, you know how it begins? Now, after the death of Joshua. Reminds me of this, this mortal frame is not our final resting place. And it reminds me that life, it's transitory in nature. Things are always changing. 
The Lord never changes, but life will always change. And so when we read this passage, the first thing we notice is their leader, the man that had been guiding and governing them, the man that had led them on a conquering path into the land of Canaan, he is now dead. And what will they do in his absence? I don't know if you realize this, but did you know in many ways in the Bible, Joshua is a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, do you know that the Old Testament name Joshua is actually the Old Testament Hebrew version of the New Testament name Jesus? And when we look at Joshua's life, and particularly him as the captain of uh, the Lord's people, we find a beautiful picture of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in our passage, Joshua is not there anymore. He has died and he has departed, and now they are left to decide how they will go on and what they will do in his absence. Now, I don't know about you, man, but that reminds me of the situation we find ourselves in in this dispensation of New Testament grace. Now, I'm happy to report to you, uh, Joshua, he wasn't dead. He was just dead in regards to this mortal frame. He was still very much alive. And let me tell you that Jesus, though He may not be dwelling with us in flesh here in this place, my friend, He is still very much alive. But we recognize, as we preached on this morning in Matthew 25, that He is not present here in the way that He was with His disciples. He's God. He's omnipresent. He is certainly present with us here in His Word. He is present certainly through His Spirit indwelling every born-again believer. But we recognize He's not sitting in a pew somewhere around us. We know where He's seated. He's seated in heaven at the right hand of God, and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. But now that then beckons us to this question. What are we going to do in his absence? We learned this morning about a man that in his master's absence chose to do nothing. But I tell you this, we better get busy and do something because the master ain't going to be gone for very much longer. So the departure of their leader looms over this passage. Then there's a second thing. The Bible says... After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? It's interesting because you'll find that in the book of Joshua, much of the land that they conquered, they didn't hold. And much of the land that they were tasked with conquering, they never did conquer. In fact, the argument I think could be rightly made that never has Israel's borders expanded to the parameters which God promised to Abraham. That, by the way, is why we don't need a revival back to an old form of Orthodox or Old Testament Judaism. Hey, the Jews never got what God said they're going to get. One of these days, Christ is going to sit on the throne of Jerusalem and He's going to give them exactly what God promised them. And He's going to reign in righteousness when that day comes. And and so uh, much of the land that had been conquered was not held. And much of the land that had been apportioned to them had not yet been conquered. In fact, that's why it goes on to describe how that the men of Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, verse 3, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against Canaanites. In other words, he's saying, come with me to my portion of the land. We'll whoop them. And he says, then we'll go to your portion of the land. We'll whoop your enemies. And we'll both have our portion or our lot of the land. So let me say that second truth that's present is not only the departure of their leader, but the dividing of the land. 
Now, by the dividing of the land, I don't mean in the sense of, of, of chaos or discord or division in a social sense. But what I mean is God had plotted out. God had surveyed that land. God had laid out for them all that could be theirs if they would only believe Him and go in and watch Him conquer the land on their behalf. In other words, it's like the Lord said, there there it is, fellas. It's all there for you. All you have to go do is go in and take it. And it can all be yours. I, mm, I've got a message to preach. I, got, I need to preach a message. Let me say, there is a lot of obsession with trying to grab hold of some new, vague, nondescript thing in religion. But can I tell you that we've got everything we need in Jesus Christ. Vance Habner, you say it this way, we don't need some new thing, we need something that's so old that it seems new. And I would tell you this, that your time as a Christian would be better spent getting in your Bible and finding out what you've already got than chasing after something that someone has claimed you don't have. We have everything we need in Christ Jesus. We've got the relationship that we need. We've got the resources we need. We've got the righteousness that we need. We've got everything. We, I don't mean we're going to get it. I mean we already have it. We just have to by faith enter in to the reality of those things. And so here they stand. Their leader has left. They are left with a responsibility. The land has been divided. They're left with opportunity. And it was now their task to finish conquering the land. But the question must be asked, how were they to go about this? I'll give this title to the message tonight, simply conquering the land. Conquering the land. And in this passage, we have, I think, some good indications about what it takes for our life to be more what God would have it to be And for our life, if you want to use the term to be victorious, I think that's appropriate and fine to have a victorious Christian life, a life that is not just barely surviving, but is thriving in the grace of God, a life that is growing, a life that is rich and robust in our walk with the Lord. I want you to notice five things with me and we'll be done tonight. Look with me at verse number one. The Bible says, Now after the death of Joshua... It came to pass that the children of Israel gathered together and had a vote to decide what they would do. Is that what your Bible says? After the death of Joshua, the children of Israel gathered together and put together a committee to look on the matter. After the death of Joshua, the children of Israel gathered together and picked the best looking one amongst them to lead them forward. After this, the children of Israel got together and got the biggest, baddest, toughest dude they could find and said, you're our king. No. The Bible says the children of Israel, here's what they did. They asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Let me say number one tonight. If you conquer the land, you'll conquer it through prayer. Through prayer. I will tell you this. Prayer is an indispensable resource in the life of the believer. Prayer is a privilege. But friend, it's not just a privilege. It's an essential It's not just something that's a nice activity to engage in when we're feeling especially religious. Prayer is not something that just in moments of darkness or despair that we can reach to like a like a lifesaver or a spare tire to help us in that very deepest and gravest of moments. Rather, prayer is the heartbeat of the believer's relationship with God. I'll tell you something I think we have missed in the life and testimony of Jesus Christ. 
The New Testament tells us we are uh, to pray over everything. The Bible says we are to be instant in prayer. The Bible says we are to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Well, you put those three things together and here's what it means. Never don't be talking to God. Never have something you won't talk to God about. And never be in a condition where you can't talk to God. I'm not opposed in any way. In fact, I encourage it. I give a a, a, a full-fledged, big, double-thumbs-up endorsement to you having a set-aside prayer time in your life. I recommend it to you. I think it's a good thing. But I will tell you this, you can languish in your Christian walk if the only time you talk to God is in some scheduled meeting point that you have set during the day. What is the pattern we see in the life of the Lord Jesus? Rather that He was always in communication with His Father. Now, does that mean that all He did was talk to God? No, but it means He was never not talking to God. Of course, he interacted with other people. He sat down. He, he took respite. He, he took refreshment and meals and, and times that he rested and times that he taught and times that he dealt with other people. But never was there a time when he considered himself out of communication with God. One of the things that I found interesting, you probably had this happen before. I, I didn't know. I'm always slow on technology. I, I, I'm not dumb. I can figure it out. I just have lost the ambition to do so. And uh, I remember, I don't. Any, any of y'all got iPhones in the room? Raise your hand. You got an iPhone? Let me tell you a problem I have with you. All right. <laughs> it took me forever. I wondered. I don't have an iPhone. I used to have an Android. Now I've I even got it down here. Now I've got this flip thing that you've got a. It's got a string attached to it. But uh, if if you're an Android user, uh, let me explain something. If you don't know what's going on, for I'm talking a year straight. I mean, I started to get mad. It started to grieve my spirit. I'd say to myself, why is it that every time I text such and such a person, they always text back a quote of my text with the word liked? Like, it was cute at first, but now I think you're making fun of me. Until one day I realized that Apple in its infinite stupidity designed that thing because Android users aren't on iMessage as such that a person, they can just hit a button and it just it, it hearts it. I don't even know what that means. It hearts it, it likes it, and then that's what it sends back to you as an Android user. About dro- I thought I was losing my mind because it wasn't just one person. It was like 30 different people doing this to me. I thought, are all these people getting together just to mess with me? What's the matter with folks? <laughs> Let me tell you something else drove me crazy when it came out because I didn't know what was going on, right? I mean, I, I just, I just not long ago got some of these little Bluetooth the, the, that you put in your ears to give you ear cancer or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? The headphones, the earbuds. But I, for the longest time, I, I didn't know these. I didn't know that was a thing. And I'd be walking through Walmart and somebody would come walking by. Just I'm talking about just talking to somebody. Just like talking to somebody like they're in their head and just going on and carrying on. And I'd look at them. What's the matter with that person? And at first I thought, well, you know, society's just crazy. That's just somebody wigged out. I don't know what that is. And then, then I saw another person do it. They were walking down the street and they're just talking, man. Just talking like somebody's right there with them. And I stared at them and thought, what's the matter with them? It took me months to realize these people was on these little Bluetooth headphones and they're talking like they're talking to somebody because they're talking to somebody. And I, I didn't realize they had that line of communication. 
But they was talking like they was there. Because to them they were. Can I tell you what the Lord Jesus did? He talked to God like He was there because He is there. He is there. And he'd just, he'd be going about his business and he'd just start talking to the Heavenly Father like he's just walking right beside him because he was. You see this, by the way, outside the tomb of Lazarus. I mean, people all broke down and skint up and tore up over Lazarus dying and people's weeping and people's carrying on. And Jesus just walks up to the tomb and, and looks up to heaven and says, I thank thee, Father, that thou hast heard me. Now, he said, I, I know thou hearest me always, but for their sakes I say this. And then he turned around and with all of the voice of divine authority said, Lazarus, come forth. But he just talked to his father like he was there because he, because he is. Being instant in prayer, praying without ceasing, and praying over all things. They, The first thing they did, they just started praying. What they pray about? Well, two things, and I'll just say them quickly and move on. Number one, they prayed seeking direction. They needed to know who was going to go up for them first. Somebody had to be the first into the breach, and they didn't know who it was going to be. So the first thing they did was say, Lord, we don't know what to do. Please tell us what to do. Can I just, hey, listen, let me kick your prayer life in hyperdrive. You ready? Say, preacher, I'd love to pray, but I just don't know what to pray about. Well, let me help you. Uh, you probably don't know how to do half the things you're trying to do in life. I know I don't. Start by saying this, Lord, I don't know what to do about this matter. Would you please show me? Lord, I don't know what to do about this job. I need your direction. Lord, I don't know what to do about this vehicle. I need, I need your direction. Lord, I don't know what to do about my kids or, or, or my sibling or, or whatever. But Lord, I need your direction. And I'll tell you this, your life will never be what God wants it to be until you start finding out what God wants it to be and then letting it be that. You've got to pray. Seeking direction, number two, seeking deliverance. Now, Here's what he says. Who should go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Now, I think they understood, and this would in fact be stated explicitly later on in this passage, that the Lord delivered up the Canaanites to the children of Israel. But when they're asking God's direction about who is to go in first, what they're saying is, Lord, we can't defeat this enemy on our own. But God, we believe you can. So we want to get our life in accordance with your desire and your will and your plan because we need your help and your strength and your victory to be able to win the day. In other words, they're asking God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And they're praying, seeking the Lord to deliver them from their enemies. And I tell you this, hey, nothing wrong with asking God to go before you and to make a path and to make a way where there is no way. I'm going to tell you something. If you'll pray in these two aspects or these two avenues, that what you'll be praying all the time. Now, maybe you just have this, this, you know, charmed life where you ain't never got no problems. Teach me how you did that. But probably if you just started looking at things you didn't know what to do about and praying and saying, Lord, I need, I need your guidance. I mean, I, I don't want to just go on my own way. I don't want to just kind of, j- just sort of, uh, 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 intuit my way through it. I, I need your wisdom. And if you'd start saying, now, Lord, I need your help in this matter. I don't know what to do about it. It's funny. We, we mostly only pray about things we feel like we can't handle. That tells us something about our wrong perspective about prayer. We ought to be asking God to handle things we probably could handle because he'll do better with it than we would. But I will tell you that certainly every single service, and we don't take prayer requests every service. You know why? Time would fail us if we did. 
Because every service, and I could start at one end and go to the other, and if I said, tell me everything on your heart to pray about, and we'd be here till this time tomorrow night. We're needy people, so what do we need to do? Well, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. If they conquered the land, it'd be through prayer. Notice verse 2. The Bible says this, And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've delivered the land into his hand. You know, it's interesting, the name Judah. I don't know if you've ever studied the history of the individual Judah. He was, uh, uh, of course, the, the son of Jacob uh, and of Leah. And, and Judah, the, <laughs> Judah's name, it's an amazing thing. You go through the experience that, that Leah had with Jacob in the Old Testament. There's a very interesting paradigm. Uh, Jacob, of course, married two women, so he had a lot of problems. <laughs> People ask me sometimes, you know, preacher, what about that polygamy in the Old Testament? And I'll say, well, you, you can find them that, that were, but you can't find any of them that were happy. I'm going to say that again. You can find some of them that were, but you can't find any of them that were happy. It always caused heartache in their home. I'll tell you this, if God's endorsing polygamy in the Old Testament, He's doing a rotten job of it. Because every man that's in that situation always has a miserable go of things. So you have Rachel, who, of course, is loved by Jacob, but is barren. And then you have Leah, who is fertile, and she, she bears many children, uh, her and her handmaid, unto Jacob. But she is, is despised by Jacob, and she really struggles with that thing. She thinks with every child she has, it's going to make him love her. Uh, I'm glad to know, hey, listen, I, I'm glad to know that God's love of me is not predicated on the things I can do for him. I'm glad I can rest in the fact that he loves me in spite of who and what I am. He loves me, uh, and, and, and in fact, I love him, hey, listen, only and, and solely because he first loved me. But one of the key moments in her life is actually when she has Judah. And she has Judah, and this is all she says about it. She named him Judah, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. She had gone through having different children. She had had, had Simeon and, and said, Well, the Lord hath heard of my affliction, hath given me a child. And, 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 you know, she goes, she has Levi, and she says, Now will my husband love me. But the, finally she comes down to Judah and she says, You know what? I don't care whether Jacob ever loves me or not. I'm going to praise God anyway for what he's done in my life. And she named him Judah, which means praise. So it's very instructive. That God, when He could have chosen any of the tribes of Israel, He said, Judah goes first. Before anybody else goes into the land, Judah goes first. That is the way to victory. Preacher, what's the significance? Well, let me say it this way. If you conquer the land, you'll do it through prayer. But number two, if you conquer it, you'll do it through praise. Notice two thoughts here. Number one is this, praise goes first. I'm going to say that again. Praise goes first. Praise goes before the victory. Praise goes before the miracle. Praise goes before things get any better. In fact, if you want to see things change, you go ahead and send praise in first and see what God does with that situation. It's interesting when you think about this. Leah says, I'm going to praise him even if nothing changes. And God says, the key to victory is to praise me even when nothing has yet changed. I wonder in our life, hey, listen, I wonder if we're sitting around waiting on God to earn our praise. 
or if we're willing to praise Him even in spite of an un, a seemingly unmoving obstacle in front of us. I will tell you this, God does not want conditional praise. He's proved Himself. But our notion is that praise is reciprocal with victory. God, you give me the miracle and I'll praise you for it. But if we want God to work and to move, we have to resolve ourselves that praise goes first. He's worthy of our praise whether He's done anything for us or not. And if we'll start praising Him, we'll be amazed at what He'll do. Because here's the thing, praise goes first, but number two, praise goes with faith. Why would Judah go into the land? They may have not known what they were about to encounter. But they were willing to go into the land based upon the promise of God in verse 2. He says, behold, I have. He doesn't say I will. You listening? You with me on a Sunday night? He doesn't say I will. He says, I have delivered the land into his hand. (laughs) Oh my, what a picture this is of how praise and faith work hand in hand. God says, Judah goes first, praise goes first. You know why? Because I've already defeated your enemies. I've already thrown down their their walls. I've already destroyed their towers. I've already given you victory in all of these things. And you may have not entered into that yet. But by my promise and by my word, I'm declaring to you that it's already been accomplished. So here's what he's saying. Hey, let me just say it this way. Go ahead and praise him for what he's going to do. Go ahead and trust Him for what He's going to do. Praise Him for what He's going to do. I don't mean invent things and put it in God's mouth. I mean go into His Word at what He has said He would do and take Him at His Word and go ahead and praise Him. Hey, praise Him a little on credit. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. Hey, I think He's done enough in our life that we've never praised Him for. He's got some stacked up. We ought to praise Him. He's got a little store of credit. We ought to be praising Him anyway. But even beyond that, you can go ahead and praise Him. And There's times in my life, not near often enough, but there's times that I'll say, Lord, I want to praise You for what You're going to do in this situation. I don't know, Lord, what You're going to do. I don't know how You're going to solve this. I don't see a way, but God, I know You've led me this path, and there will be a way. And so I'm going to praise You in advance for what I know You're going to do. And I may not know all the details, and I may not know all the inner workings, but God, You've You've uh, You've proven Yourself, and I've counted You faithful, and I know You're going to keep Your Word, so I'll praise You anyway, trusting that You're going to answer. There's times, hey, listen, if they're going to conquer it, they're going to conquer it through prayer and through praise. But notice number three, they're going, they're going to have to conquer it through partnership. Verse number three, Judah said unto Simeon, his brother. Now, again, this is sort of figurative in its language. Judah is not just simply an individual. He's many, many individuals. And Simeon is not an individual. He's many, many individuals. But the tribe of Judah, their leadership, their elders, said unto the leadership and elders of the tribe of Simeon. Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. It's going to take partnership. We don't like that. I don't like that. I'm going to be frank with you. Well, actually, he's going to be frank. I'll be Toby. But I'm, I'm going to be... I don't like this whole thing of feeling like I can't do it on my own. Son, listen, I've already watched all the old westerns. And it's always, a good guy always has to do it on his own. I get that. 
I understand. Hey, listen, I, the, the hoss and little Joe done been kidnapped. Adam is knocked out somewhere in a railroad mine. It's going to be up to me. I get it. And, and I don't like to admit that I need folks. I'd like to think I could do it on my own. But the truth is, this is something you'll find always and invariably in the Word of God that God's people need one another. I'm not saying you need everybody that claims the name of Christ, but I'm saying you need somebody that does truly know Him. This is why God has planted us in the New Testament church. We need, we need, we need the fellowship of believers. We need the relationship of the New Testament church. And I would say in this passage, we we see two things here. Notice, number one, there's help requested. Now, this is interesting because God has already told Judah, I've done done this. And it would have been very easy for Judah to say, well, we don't need Simeon then. But he recognized that what God accomplishes, he accomplishes through the channels and principles that he's laid out in his word. And the principles of God's Word are not that we go alone as the rugged individual going and pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but rather that the people of God, and this was equally as true of Israel as a people in the Old Testament as it is of the local New Testament church in the New Testament, that the people of God need one another. So he said, listen, I'm not going to be so prideful as to think I can do this thing on my own, but rather I will submit and humble myself to the reality that I need folks helping me, praying for me, encouraging me, strengthening me. You'll see this every now and then. People, I I ain't going to waste time with a whole big long story of it, but you see people get upset, get messed up, get angry, get bitter, they get out. And I've known these people, they decide they're going to go out and start home church. You ever seen this? This is a weird phenomenon to me, you know. I mean, we got padded pews, we got... We, we, we got, they claim that what they're going to do at home is going to be just like what we do here, which then begs the question, why are you going to do that at home instead of just doing it right here? And, you know, we could talk about, you know, how many missionaries does a home church support? <laughs> uh, where's the authority in a home church and all sorts of different things. But suffice it to say that that is often born of a spirit of self-reliance. Oftentimes, it's born of a spirit of a lack of of submission to any type of authority, pastoral, but also biblical authority. So how do you know that, preacher? Because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling yourselves together. Some preacher didn't sit down and write that because he's scared he's going to lose all of his people. The Bible says that. And so for all they want to say that it's a revival back to the purity of New Testament Christianity, hey, can I tell you what the New Testament church did? It met. Oh, that's all right. I just wanted to pastor a little bit. Is that okay? It met. And so the person that says, well, we're going to get a revival back to New Testament Christianity by starting a home church or doing something decidedly unbiblical because they're forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. No, see, the New Testament church, you know what they did? They met. And they'll be the first ones to say, well, it ain't about the building. Well, then why does it have to be in a home? I know that's too logical for some, you know, but why then do they have to be in a home? I've, I've, I'm talking about nobody in this room, but I've dealt with this in my ministry in years past. And I'm just telling you, hey, listen, the New Testament church, they met. And if it don't matter what the building is, Brother Ken, then it don't matter what the building is, Brother Ken. It it does it. It don't matter, does it? Kenny ain't going to go start a home church, at least not as far as I know. I just, he encourages me, so I talk to him sometimes. He smiles a lot, and that helps you. 
if you had to look at what I have to look at, you'd occasionally look for somebody that smiles at you. And so, I, you know, mm, we need one another. We do. I'd like to think we don't, but we do. You may think you don't, but you do. We see help requested, but then we see this. We see help returned. Verse number 3 says this, I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. In other words, he said this, you help me. Here's what I'm going to do, feller. I'm going to help you. He recognized that his function in that partnership was not just one of what he needed, but recognized that indeed and in fact, others needed him as well. Church ain't just about what you get out of it. It's about what you put into it too. You say, preacher, well, I just don't know if I need, well, I wonder who does need. I'll tell you I need it. I'll admit it. You ready? Here I go. I'm admitting it. I need church. I need the people of God. I need fellowship. I need encouragement. I need strength. I need iron to sharpen iron. Listen, if for no other reason, hey, those that feel like Walridge is the will of God for them, you ought to keep coming. It encourages one another. Mm, man, I, listen, it's going to be done through partnership. But then notice fourth thing. It's not only going to be done through partnership, it's going to be done through participation. The Bible says in verse number 4, And Judah went up. In other words, they didn't just talk about fighting. They fought. Judah went up, and then what? And the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. In other words, there's a real problem today with the notion of speculative Christianity. And I'm going to be honest with you, even a lot of good, solid, Bible-believing churches that preach strong, straight doctrine have devolved into this weird cultural ritual of merely coming and almost beholding the doctrines of the Word of God like they're some kind of painting in a museum. And by the way, it's part of the reason I have a problem with this whole contemporary movement and them devolving the experience of church into that of a spectator or consumer experience. And that's why that's why they take away the hymnals and put the bouncing ball up. That's why they put the scripture up there so that you don't carry a Bible with you. That's why you're not asked to to, to participate in the, in the worship and preaching by amening and and being vocally involved with it. Because see, you're just a spectator. There's no difference between you and those pews than there is with the people down at the rock concert sitting at the Coliseum. They're just expected to sit and consume that. That's not the biblical model of New Testament Christianity. And one of the problems is, even in strong Bible-believing churches, preaching has been sort of warped and transformed into this concept of being merely a speculative experience. We come and listen to see how smart the preacher is. See if he can tell us anything we ain't heard before. We come and sit down so that we can have our imaginations illuminated and, 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 you know, our egos stroked and, and we come and just sort of indulge in it almost like someone attending some sort of collegiate or academic lecture. But can I tell you this Christian life, hey, and New Testament Christianity and Bible preaching and the ministry of the local church is more than a speculative exercise. It's a deeply personal and, and, and participatory 
experience. It's not you coming and sitting there and finding out if the preacher found something interesting in the Bible this week. But it's you coming and putting yourself under the, uh, the authority of God's Word and asking God in heaven to reach down and speak to your heart, asking the Holy Ghost to deal with your life and to, to gain victories and, and to gain authority and to gain governance over you and for you to yield yourself and allow God to get glory out of your life. So here's what it's going to take. It's going to take your participation. I wasn't even preaching about church. Somehow we wound up preaching about church. Let me tell you something. If you want your life to be what it needs to be for the Lord, you're going to have to fight for it. Notice two things here. One, they joined the fight. Judah went up. They weren't no coward. They said, "We'll, we'll field. We'll go. We'll join the battle. We'll do whatever it takes because it's not going to happen passively or incidentally. It's going to have to happen deliberately. I often say it. You'll hear me say it a bunch as we come into the uh, revival meetings here in a couple of weeks. You're going to have to be there on purpose. Why is that? Because the devil will make sure you're not there by accident. But very often we treat the whole of the Christian walk as something that is entirely incidental. In its experience. We treat it like it's like it's a thing that happens to us. We're just walking along and all of a sudden, boom, Christianity happened to me. <laughs> We're just walking along, man. We're just sitting around, just, just you know, doing whatever. And then, and then, bam, it found me. You know, it just happened to me, you know. And nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that Bible Christianity, and this is, by the way, both true for those that are Coming to Christ to be born again, it's an intelligent decision of the mind. They are submitting their will to God by coming to Him and saying, Now, Lord, I can't save myself. I need you to forgive me and I need you to save me. It's not something that just happens to them beyond their agency, but it's their choice to come to Christ. And the same is true about our growth as a believer. It's not, we sometimes think of it like, Well, if the preacher preaches better, I'll grow better. No, listen, hey, you can grow in spite of how terrible a preacher I am. Well, if the singers sing better, we'd worship better. No, hey, you're going to worship based upon your willingness to worship. Well, you know, listen, preacher, if if things, if there's more ministries, if things were more orderly, if things were this, if things that, no. All that is nothing but just excuses. The truth of the matter is we get out of it what we put in it. And if we want our walk with Christ to grow, we're going to have to join the fight. I see that they joined the fight. Number two, I see that God defeated the foe. It's perfectly clear, isn't it? The Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. In other words, they showed up to fight, but they didn't win the victory. They, by faith, trusted the Lord, and the Lord did what they could not do. And there we find the disconnect with with human intuition. We think, well, I need to see a, a clear working path for how things work. I like to watch them YouTube videos. I got the YouTube. Have you got the YouTube? I like to watch on the YouTube the people fix the cars. And they'll find some wreck's been buried somewhere in the middle of, I mean, in a, it's been buried under six feet of concrete, and they'll drag it out, you know, and they'll start working on it. And so I love a combustion engine. It's fascinating. I don't know everything there is to know. I don't know even a thousandth of what there is to know. But it does sort of make sense. It's not like these electric things that just through sheer voodoo and government magic activate and go and do things. I can't make no sense out of it. 
I like a combustion engine. I understand. I understand the concept of compression. I understand the concept of fuel. I understand the concept of spark. I understand kind of what's going on. And I, I like things that I can see how they work. But can I tell you something in the Christian life? You're not always going to be able to see how it's going to work. But if you'll do your part and you'll field yourself on the battlefield, you'll see God do amazing things. There's a final thought here, and if I had my way, I'd preach another hour or something, but I'm not going to. I, I just want you to notice this impact, because there's so much in these next few verses. But notice verses 5, 6, and 7. The Bible says this, And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites, the Perizzites. Now, Adonai Bezek is uh, the king of the Canaanites, and he hangs out in a place called Bezek. And his name is Adonai Bezek. And Adonai Bezek means this, Lord of Bezek. That's pretty easy to remember, isn't it? That's deep stuff, I know. But he's the king of the Canaanites. The Bible says this, verse 6, But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him and caught him. And here's what they did. They cut off his thumbs and his great toes. That seems cruel, man. Just shoot me, you know. I, I don't even know how a person picked their nose without their big toe. Amen? Right? And uh, <laughs> that seems cruel until you read verse 7. Because the Bible says this, Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, seventy kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so hath God requited me. Let me say it this way. If you're going to conquer the land, you're going to do it through prayer, praise, partnership, participation. But number five, you're going to do it through pursuit. Pursuit. Uh, it's interesting when you look at this passage, how that God goes out of his way to include this little story about the defeat of this man. And I want you to think with me about a couple things. In many ways, Adonai Bezek is a picture of Satan and him being a fierce and ruthless opponent of the people of God. It's interesting that the name Bezek actually means lightning. And of course, if, you know, you've read in the New Testament, the Bible describes Christ made the statement that he saw Satan fall as lightning from the sky. And here in this passage, Adonai Bezek, he is a cruel king who seeks to deform and destroy the lives of those that he subjugates. So here is what the people of Israel were. Number one, they were relentless in their pursuit. They said, man, we can't let that scoundrel go. We can't just chase him a little ways. we got to stay hot on his tail until we bring him to heel. Can I tell you the difference between those that have flash-in-the-pan moments of emotionalism and those that have life-transforming moments of, of having their will broken and subjugated to God? The difference is in the pursuit. The pursuit. Are you as interested in what God will do in your life when you get in the car as you are when you're down at the altar. Or by the time you get up from the altar, is all that done and behind you and gone? If you want your life to be what God wants it to be, it ain't just going to be hitting a lick at it occasionally. It's going to be a life of consistent obedience to the Lord. And you know why? Because there's no room for anything less. Your enemy will destroy you if he gets the chance. It's interesting. Adonai Bezek, he didn't cut a man's thumbs and toes off and then kill him. 
but rather he kept him at his table as a trophy of his prowess and of his ability. Their whole life was lived in humiliating shame at the fact that Adonai Bezek had captured and conquered them. Now, that's what the devil wants to do to you. He don't just, hey, listen, he don't just want a little slice of your life. He wants to staple you down to a seat at his table and parade you as a trophy of his ability to conquer and and, and control the people of God. So here's what they were. They were relentless in their pursuit. Notice the second thing here. They were merciless in their pursuit. Man, once I find out what this guy did, I, I like what they did. That's that Old Testament eye for an eye. You know, and Gandhi said an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But he was godless. (laughs) And unless he came to Christ, he's in hell today. (laughs) He should have took both them good eyes he had and put them on a Bible and seen that there was hope in Christ and not in Krishna. So, I, you know, but, but, but here's what I want you to understand. They, they looked at it and they said, this guy has done this to so many people. Wouldn't it be good if he got his? Wouldn't it just be just if this one that is now on the losing side of this battle, if he got his? And so here's what they did. They recognize, and I like the way that he says it. I got, I mean, I got to give him applause here because this is what he says. He said, as I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. By the way, the world's, <laughs> Satan's grip over this world is going to die in the valley of Megiddo and it's going to be buried on the throne in Jerusalem one day. <laughs> That's just, that ain't part of my message, but I just like it. It's good. I wanted to say it. But I will tell you this, you better be merciless in your attitude towards Satan and towards his plan for your home and your kids and your life, your spouse, your family. Because I'll tell you this, if he gets a chance, he won't give you no quarter. And he won't give you no pity. I got good news to report. There's going to come a day that as he's done to the people of God, so and so much more will be done to him. But in the meantime, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to start taking your walk with God seriously recognizing that this is not just being good or getting gooder, but it's literally a matter of life and death. It's a matter, not hey, it's not between peace and conquest. It's between liberty and subjugation. It's not, am I going to be a good Christian or a better Christian? It's, are you going to give God the victory in your life or are you going to allow Satan to take control? It's that, you say, I'll preach, that's dramatic. No, read your Bible, that's true. That's true. And they recognized that there was no, there were no half measures. It had to be full tilt if God was going to do a great work. So here's what they did, they did it. I understand you go on and Israel continues to have a checkered history. But do they not in many ways paint a path forward for you and I in living the life that God desires for us? It's going to take prayer. It's going to take praise. It's going to take partnership. Hey, it's going to take participation. It's going to take pursuit. But I think with these things, I think God can do a great thing in our life. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I've already preached my message. I'm not going to preach it again. But if God has spoken to your heart, that's an important thing. So don't ignore him. Don't neglect him. But instead, meet him in this altar.
Let him have his will and way in your heart, in your life. Whatever God dealt with you about, meet him down here. You say, preacher, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, just bear your heart to him. Just bear your heart to him. Preacher, I, I, I wouldn't know how to fix. You don't have to. Just, just humble your heart before him. Tell him what's on your heart, what's on your mind. Let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. He's worthy. We ask it in his name.